Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Johnston. Peter is the director of John Watt & Son, a company which has been supplying Carlisle with high quality coffee and tea for over 100 150 years. Um, Peter, very warm welcome to yourself this afternoon and thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's a real pleasure having you join us, uh, Peter, for sure. And the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's business leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I'm sure you'll agree, in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. Um, we, in all honesty... I think on the 23rd of March, when everything was closed down, you probably would have found us in a heap on the floor trying to work out how we were going to uh, see our way through the crisis. Um, And in return, what we would now say is, if you'd have told us where we are today on the 23rd of March, we would have said, oh, uh, we've probably exited the crisis or semi-exited it in a very far stronger position than we thought we would have done. Um, Our business seemed to pivot from being high street to um, online. Um, The decision that we took two years ago to diversify our business um, so that we did more than just high street tea and coffee, wholesale business and took advantage of my skills from within contract catering have have been very fruitful for us because the piece of business that we look after in Newcastle for Accord Healthcare has their turnover doubled and we've supported them through the the crisis as they've continued to work. So yeah, yeah, I, I think we've come out of this in a, a far better position than we so far than we thought was possible. And having sort of come out of it into that position, reflecting on how you've sort of managed your way through, is there anything that you would say that you've learned from this experience of crisis management in your leadership role? Yes, I think what stood us in good stead was our core principles that we have based the business on. So we have very much based our business on looking after our people, forming collaborative partnerships with customers and suppliers, having been quite open and honest and delivering what we promise. So what we found was an awful lot of our customer base that was supporting us in the shops found a way to support the business and what we delivered to them by phone and by webmail. And I remember one customer who couldn't get through on the web and he rang us and we had all the phones transferred to my mobile at home. And I said to him, oh, thank you very much for your order. I, I really appreciate your support. And he said, no, no, don't thank me. He said, what I get from you is a great service and a great product. He says, and I'm more than happy to support it. And I went, oh, thank you very much. 
So the, the decision on the core principles as to how we were going to operate our business and instill those into the business have stood us in good stead. And out of that, our staff have responded as we've gradually brought them back and our customer base has started to come back in and return. Mm, that's certainly encouraging to hear. And if we move on now to sort of the wider subjective leadership, which is, of course, uh, why you're here, Peter, I always like to ask the uh, question to everybody that comes on the show as to what that word leader actually means to you. When you think of a leader's role, what should a leader be doing in your eyes? The leader should be creating a vision as to what you want to achieve. And the leader equally needs to allow the people that follow the opportunity to influence where you end up, to play a part in it so that they can own part of that vision. And in a way, he needs to hold them to account so that we're always staying true to the core, moving it forward, responding, telling people where we've gone wrong, asking them how we do better. But more importantly, you've got to however you're feeling be that person that can give somebody confidence to do their job to to allow them to excel and i always think the greatest pleasure of mine in in all the the the, the roles i've played is the one whereby you can give somebody confidence to excel and be better because that then starts to make your job as a leader so much easier because they're pushing you and it has to be a partnership of leadership of you giving direction and the people below you being comfortable enough and open enough in your style to be able to push you and ask the questions that they need. Do you think that leaders and indeed the people that they lead, if you will, bring the best out of themselves and indeed you can learn more about yourself as a leader more when things are going through a little bit of a challenging time like the COVID-19 situation as opposed to when things are doing well? Absolutely. I think it's in times where it's where things are not working or are not happening as you expect them to be, you have to stand back and look at what you've done right, what you've done wrong, perhaps you should have changed it, and how you then impart that knowledge to the people around you to make sure that they can respond. And your leadership, to me, all the way through my career, my leadership style has at times has changed. Sometimes it may have to be, I think it's quite dictatorial. You are telling people what they need to do. Other times you are coaching them to get to be the right answer. And I think particularly during COVID, our the way that we, both myself and my, my other director, interact with our team, in that we try to coach, we try to mentor them, we try to pull them forward, has allowed the team to come back and fully contribute to the success success that we've had since everything started to reopen. And I mean, I'm sitting here quite embarrassed. I mean, we were 15% up year on year last month, yet I know I've got a lot of customers out there that are struggling. Um, so we don't shout about it, but everybody's played that part in getting us to that position. And thinking about the value that 
this pandemic experience has placed on hindsight as well. We can look back and think of a lot of things that business leaders and indeed figures within government could have perhaps done differently in managing their way through this. But do you think it's part and parcel of being a leader, that experience of trying things, getting one or two things wrong along the way, and then embracing that as a learning curve? I think the ability or the, the ability to change to be prepared to get things wrong, to be prepared to learn from the mistakes and review what you've done wrong is the most important part. Unless you try something, you never know whether it's going to work. Unless you try and sometimes fail, you're not going to know where you've gone wrong. Nothing works first time. And, And particularly within this business that we're now operating, there's things that we did in year one that now looking back, it was the wrong thing to do, but we've then enhanced that and changed it, and it now works better. And I think you've always got to be looking to continually evolve. Uh, and it may not be a big change, but lots of small changes start to make the big, a bigger change. So it's to me, it's always about evolution and not revolution. Um, because if you can continue to evolve your product and your style of service and the way that the people are involved or managed, you're you're continually improving that business. And it's that consistency of small changes that bring the results. Mm, Completely understand where you're coming from uh, from that point of view. And considering, Peter, that you are somebody who has well over 20 years experience in various managerial and executive roles, um, if you could perhaps give some advice to a younger person who is perhaps looking to make it in business and stepping into a leadership role for the first time, what sort of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make a change. You can always say sorry and change it back. That was a piece of advice that was given to me by somebody and it was so valuable because sometimes you'll be there sitting, do I do something or do I not do something? And actually, the fact of not doing anything is worse than doing something even if it's wrong. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, I think that's incredibly sound advice, MND, by the way, uh, Peter. We know that over the next 12 months, it is going to be a little bit of an uncertain time as we hopefully shrug off the COVID-19 situation forever, but also we're going to have to adjust to that new normal way of living and working in the meantime. So for that sort of next 12 months that we can perceive for now, what do you feel is next for you and for John Watson as a business? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? I think we always had planned this year to be a year of stability, whereby for us we would build capacity and capability in the business with the view that the start of the new year we would look to expand again, Uh, be that in a contract catering environment or with new wholesale orders or we grow the web style. It was always this year a little bit about, um, for us, understanding where our business was, growing some capability into the team, getting some solidity in the base so that we could grow again. And whatever the 
currently the climate is outside the door or whatever else is. I think as a business, you've always got to be prepared to be looking for that next opportunity. Because if you're not, is it going to be there? Perhaps if you're not looking for it, uh, you would then miss it. So you know, at the end of the day, there will be other opportunities out there. And I think as a as a business, we've got to try and get ourselves to the position to grab that with both hands. Uh, but I think we also need to always retain true, stay true to our principles of local produce, look after our people, form collaborative partnerships and deliver what we promise. Absolutely. Um, fantastic plans are there, uh, Peter. And I certainly hope that there's uh, some fortune over the next year as hopefully they do come to fruition. And I think actually, just considering how um, enlightening it's been having you joining us on the uh, the programme today, it would be wonderful to catch up in future, maybe a few months down the line, just to see how things are coming along in that respect. Uh, absolutely. I mean, as I say, we would be delighted to talk again. I mean, yeah. I, it, it, the word is, I would say a scary time, but it's not. We, we're, we're in a situation, and I'll always touch wood, that within reason now I think we can control our destiny. Uh, and I think we have to be positive. I think there's big changes in the way people will shop, the way people that will come out. But I do perceive that there is a, a change in emphasis that people want to support local, want to support those independents on the high street. And I think if there's anything, that would be great to see that encouraged and grown because that will build resilience within the marketplace. I completely agree with you there, Peter. Let's certainly keep our fingers crossed that it is all going to be positive trajectory from here because there are still a great many variables in the way the pandemic could go, of course, as well as the economic recovery. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully touch base again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you very much. I was speaking on today's programme to Peter Johnston, director of John Watt and Son. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 20 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID 19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, 
have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.